Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you from Athenry, County Galway. I'm sitting here on a snowy evening in Athenry, late January, still under lockdown, like you all. And the frightening thing about it is I think we're getting used to it. Uh, I hate to use the hackneyed phrase, the new normal, but it may not be entirely inappropriate. I am afraid that we are becoming uh, battery hens in that sense. But anyway, we won't solve that tonight. The Gospel today, and you might remember that I'm trying to be guided by the readings at the moment and dovetail this podcast with my sermon on on Sundays, which makes it easier for me, but also makes it, in a sense, you know, a, a bit more of a challenge as well. And I can't get around this. I would if I could, because I'm lazy and a coward, both together. But I just can't get around this. The call in the readings today is to repentance. Whether it's Jonah preaching to the Ninevites or whether it's our Lord in the Gospel according to St. Mark. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Now, you remember my saying that, you know, translations, as the Italians say, traditore, traditore, you know, translator, traitor. The translations are never perfect. The Greek original says close at hand isn't bad, but it's a bit more active. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near. It's drawing near. There's a real sense of the kingdom of heaven as something magnificent and beautiful, impossibly beautiful, and yet awe-inspiring and even terrible. In Yeats's phrase, a terrible beauty. There's a real sense of that. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near. There's an ominous quality to it in a very positive way, and yet it is a warning. The day will not last forever, the mortal day. The night will come, and then the book will be closed. And what we've done, we'll have done. And what we haven't done, won't be done. And so there's a real message here of urgency, and the calling is to repent. And now the Greek word used there is stronger again than repent. Metanoia is a change of heart. It's not simply a change of mind. Now, a change of mind is an impressive thing. It's an impressive thing, and it takes a big man or woman to change their mind, and furthermore, to admit it, and to say, well, I thought that then, but I'm not of the same mind, and here is why I've changed my mind. That takes a very confident person, a very big person, to change their mind. What's being asked here is far more radical. In the original meaning of the word radical, the Latin meaning, radix, root, it goes, it is a a transformation, root and branch, down to your toes. I remember it being said once by a friend of mine who didn't smoke and disapproved of smoking. This is 30 years ago when we were all young teachers and I was smoking and some of us were. And he, he referred to a female colleague and shook his head and he said, you can see it drag it down to her toes. She'd come in after a double class or whatever she was teaching and she would light the cigarette with such relish that it would practically disappear in an instant. That is what we're being called to do. We're being called to inhale the kingdom down to our toes. We're being called to make a radical change in our lives. Repent, change, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. And that change is a change of heart. 
So it involves the word of God soaking into our intention and our will and our emotions and affectivity. Grace should transform the whole person. Now you may think that this kind of thing doesn't happen, but it does happen far more than people think. I think often it's not talked about because people are embarrassed. You know, they're nearly more embarrassed by the cure than they were by the disease. They're absolutely shocked at the work of grace in their lives. And they don't want to come across as a religious nut. They don't want to come across as some sort of an obsessive. As a a friend of mine once said severely to somebody who had given up smoking and was urging him to do the same, Madam, there is nothing worse than a reformed drunk. That shut her up. And, And it can be the case, you know, you can become a bore. You can become a bore whether it's fitness or, you know, a change to a plant-based diet or a keto diet, because I think diets to an extent nowadays, the modern diets, even though they probably all have very valuable components, but um, they're a bit of a replacement for religion. Very interesting to watch that and very interesting to watch the passion with which people take them up. Now, I have considerable sympathy with the vegans and the vegetarians. As I get older, I find I'm getting more and more disquieted, if that's even a word. I'm getting more bothered in myself by the industries that involve the killing of millions of animals all the time. I am getting bothered by that. You know, our primitive ancestors killed for the table and they used every part of the animal. I'm thinking of the terrific waste of modern society and the carnage just to keep us in a really quite a luxurious way of life. Anyway, I'm not going to bore you with it. I'm just saying I'm not dismissing it and I do have sympathy with it. And yet was it Chesterton that said that every heresy that ever appeared was the truth pressed too hard, pressed too hard. And I feel that there is a Gnostic and heretical quality to a lot of these diets, even though I have sympathy with some of them. So you can become a dreadful bore once you change, once you convert. My warmest memory is a sister from the order called the Home of the Mother who went out to Medjugorje. Now, please, if you're down on Medjugorje and you may have perfectly good reasons and you may have a very reasonable argument, but please, let's not close doors to grace, okay? Let's not close doors. Let's always say, well, what if? Because the Church and the Holy Father has pronounced itself not satisfied, but it has pronounced itself very interested. Would that be a good summary? It has pronounced itself very positively interested in what's happening in Medjugorje and has given them a fair amount of encouragement. She went out to Medjugorje a heroin addict. A heroin addict. That is a very severe addiction. I'm no doctor, I'm no nurse, but I know that an addiction to heroin is very, very powerful. And she went up the mountain, as they say, and came down the mountain. She went up the mountain a heroin addict, a druggie, a junkie, and she came down the mountain cured. Alcoholics Anonymous and all the others to help people with drugs and all the rest, they don't allow anyone ever to say they're cured. They're always recovering, as indeed as sinners, we're always recovering sinners. Well, the best I can say is that she came back from Medjugorje no longer a heroin addict, and she had very little to say about it. Very plain-spoken Dublin one. Very little to say about it, except that she went out like that and she came back like the other. And that was what God had done for her. And it was deeply impressive for all the terse, laconic, the brevity with which she simply gave her testimony. When people say, oh, people don't change, 
There is a truth in that. Just don't become a heretic, okay? Don't take your bit of truth and press it and squeeze it and batter it and roll it out until it forms some sort of an anti-faith, some sort of a parallel faith. You've got a bit of the truth. The church has the whole truth. So don't get above yourself. You know, calm down. If we lose faith in the possibility of change in human beings, we have lost the faith. The fact of the matter is that people do change. Now here I have to say as a believer, more accurately, people are changed and they're changed profoundly by grace. And I have met such people and I have experienced it in my own life. Not as dramatic as hers, but I sincerely believe that I was cured of a strong addiction to tobacco, which had beaten me before. I was off it for five years and went back on, on the fags. And I came off them again on the feast of the Immaculate Conception five years ago and have not smoked since. And I believe it was through the intercession of Our Lady which I had asked for. It was a great grace. There is change in people's lives, but the profoundest change comes from God because we are not capable of it. I've probably told you this story before, but I remember an Irish bishop was asked once. He was a very blunt-spoken man, a farming stock, and a very bluff, plain, uh, intelligent bishop. You know, good bishop, good pious bishop uh, of the old school. And he was asked, was it true that Bishop so-and-so, a bishop from one of the mission countries, was in trouble again with the Vatican? And he said, sadly, that he was. We had a lot of missionaries. This is 30 or 40 years ago. We had a lot of missionaries still at the time in these countries. and So we heard a lot of the news. And tell me, said his interlocutor, asked his interlocutor, what is it this time like? What's he in trouble over this time? Ah, the word is he was chopping the odd chicken on the quiet. Meaning in a very, very earthy sort of way that this particular bishop was having difficulty in breaking away from the animist faith, from the pagan faith, from which his family had only been converted about a generation before. You could see how it might happen. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying you could see how it might happen and how the church doesn't jump up on a chair screaming because a pagan mouse runs across the floor. She's a tough old bird, the church. She's seen it all before. Uh, So the bishop got his wrist well slapped. And I don't believe the problem entirely went away, but it was partially cured at least. The same thing was observable in Ireland up until quite recently. I think it's the writer, Tim Robinson, says that he saw it after the pilgrimage in Maumain. He saw people making the circle of the well in a particular way that wasn't, this had been handed down. They were doing it after the mass and the stations had all been done. So these things die hard. Mm, they die hard. They tend to carry on, as it were, like the Sheelany gigs in the walls of the churches, you know, the obscene little statues. They tend to carry on. It's not something to panic about, but it's something to be profoundly aware of because there's a very good analogy to be drawn here. We return to our sins the whole time. We have pagan hearts. And I'm talking about the old Adam. The old Adam doesn't go away. He's driven out, the old Eve. They're driven out by baptism as they were driven out of the garden. They're driven out to make way for the new man, the new woman, but they stay glowering sullenly from the long grass. They don't entirely go away. And this struggle is going on the whole time with our old nature. And our old nature is firmly in league with the serpent. It's an unholy and unconsummated marriage. It's an uneasy alliance, but it's there and it's real. 
And so we have to get used to struggling with it. And a, a huge problem is that for a while the church seemed embarrassed to talk about evil. It seemed embarrassed to talk about the devil. It was embarrassed by its own depositum, by the tremendous treasury that it had been given to guard, to foster, to pass on. No, it wasn't, but it certainly seemed like that. And on the ground, a lot of this was being ignored. Pope Francis has repeatedly referred to the work of the devil in the world and to the work of evil. Has repeatedly and pointedly referred to it. Now, the, older, the other popes did too, but he has made a point of referring to it. We cannot be too aware of this. And you will go back to your sins. You will go back to your sins from time to time. I'm, now, look, when I say that, you might be mad with me for saying that, and you might have a point. Maybe I shouldn't talk to you like that. You will go back to your sins. That's like saying people don't change. I'm not saying you won't change. I'm saying the power of sin doesn't change. Not this side of the grave. Maybe it's more respectful of me to say you will be tempted to go back to your sins. Is that fair? Can we live with that? And so am I. And so I'm not talking down to you. I'm an addict like yourself. Like yourself. My name is Brendan and I'm a junkie. I'm a sin junkie. And what am I going to confess to now? Something that will appear on the front of the tabloids tomorrow. I'm not even that interesting. I confess to my mediocrity, to my meanness. I confess to my neglect. I confess to my distractions and prayer. I confess to, instead of being the glorious being that God created, the glorious being that he renewed and regenerated in baptism, the glorious being that is called to be with him forever in heaven, I confess to being the seedy, grey, mediocre little Adam that has never entirely gone away. The coward the chancer, the compromiser, the dodger, the messer, the slobberer, the macabre, something will turn up, which is not Christian hope. It's pagan chance. I dice for the robes of Christ with the hangman. And forgive me, because I despise the shifting of blame. I'm not doing that. But I have to tell you, is that if you're human at all, the chances are is you've done it or are doing it. And I say to you now, not talking down to you, not aggressively, not contemptuously, I say to you now as a fellow sinner, because it's my duty and office to say it to you, I say to you, repent, for the kingdom draweth near. He is here. He is already here. Don't ask when he'll come. He's here. It is already among us. If it has not yet been completed, it doesn't mean it's not here. Change now while you can. And you say back to me, I can't change. God bless you for that grace-filled admission. That is a tremendous thing to say. That is our battle cry. Our battle cry is, I can't. The cry of the pagan world now is, oh, I can. I can do anything. All right, jump off a 20-floor building and see how that goes. It'll go swimmingly up until about the last three inches. Uh, that's generally where the problem lies. But he can do anything. He can do anything. He commands angel hosts, legions of angels at his command. He can do anything. Why on earth are you dooming yourself to constant failure when you have a friend like that? When you have that kind of influence? When all you have to do, so to speak, is pick up the phone and help will be at hand.
Repent. Easier said than done. By crikey it is. It's easier said than done. You remember the scriptural warning, the dog returneth to its own vomit. It's blunt and it's disgusting, but we've all seen dogs do it. That's when you know a dog's a dog and not some furry little human being, but really quite an alien being. But we do it. We go back again and again to the old sins. If we could see how disgusting our behaviour must be to the palate of the angels, of the saints, the new palate of the saints and of God, we would be so embarrassed. You know the way they tell you now about your diet? If you could see what you're putting into you, if you could see what it's doing to your insides, what it's doing to your body, if you could see what these things are doing to your soul, if I could see it, we'd stop sinning straight away. I mean, if we could really see it and understand it. But this side of the grave, we don't get the full comprehension. Now, some human beings come very close. I mean, the children of Fatima were shown things. I accept that. Some human beings come very close, but they still retain their free will and they could have sinned afterwards, you know? If you are caught in a circle like that, what they call in business a reinforcing circle, you do one thing because of another and then you do the other because of the thing and then you do the thing because of the other and so on, round and round and round. If you're caught in that circle and you can't break out of it, now the obvious thing you know, sex is, of course, always interesting. And we, we run the danger of paying a bit too much attention to that. But it is a very dangerous sin. It's not the worst sin. It's dangerous. It's very intimate. It's connected to a lot of others. And pornography, of course, is rife nowadays. It's having a terrible effect, a very baneful effect. So if the problem is there, let's say it's with uh, chemical addiction to drugs, to cigarettes, to alcohol. Let's say you're addicted to gossip. And you know the internet has turned the whole world into a village and possibly into a valley of the squinting windows. You remember that title of that Irish novel? The Valley of the Squinting Windows. You know, Twitter and all the rest. If you've become addicted to that stuff, we say, you know, if you could only see what you're putting into your body, if you could only see what you're doing to your soul, but you can very easily check your screen time and it'll shock you. It has shocked me a few times. I'm not the worst. I'm responsible enough with it but not responsible enough because I was shocked at how much time I had spent watching things. It can be a whole load of stuff. You can become addicted to cruelty. You can become addicted to power. Come addicted to consumerism and to shopping, which is a very modern thing. Very much a modern phenomenon. And you can't break out of it. Ask God to bring you out of it. Ask God to bring you out of it. By the way, you can also become addicted to work. It's one of the most subtle and the most dangerous. And it's the most dangerous because you'll be praised for it. Workaholic is actually only tangentially a term of criticism or abuse. It's generally said with a, a reluctant admiration. But any aholic does not deserve admiration for that specific thing because they're doing it out of compulsion. And a workaholic can destroy his life. He can destroy his family life. His or her, their kids never see them and have a terrible effect on themselves because of uh, the lack of leisure, the lack of sleep. All the stimulants that are often consumed to keep people awake to work these phenomenal hours. Uh, I often think in Stalin's time in Russia, they took this miner called Stakhanov and they gave him uh, very favorable conditions and he was in top physical shape and they timed him 
they timed to see how many hours of work he could do. He came up with this absolutely off the register productivity in, say, a normal working day. And then they were kind of setting that as the ideal. And you got, I think, was a medal and a reward and you were a stakhanovite. No, it wasn't a bad idea at heart. It was uh, pretty dishonest, to be honest, because he, uh, most Russians weren't well fed at the time and they weren't working in ideal conditions. Are you a Stakhanovite like that? Are you somebody who just never leaves the factory, never leaves the office? never? Le- That's just not good. I mean, Jordan Peterson's very good on this, where he talks about the alpha males. He talks about the price for these top jobs, where people are making millions every year. They have huge power within corporations and companies and huge prestige and tremendous lifestyle that they don't have time to enjoy. A bed that they barely sleep in. They sleep four to five hours. They're always working. I think Margaret Thatcher did the same thing. It said about Napoleon, but in fact, I read a good biography of Napoleon uh, there some few years ago and it doesn't seem to have been actually true. He did sleep normally. You need your sleep. So, I mean, I suppose what I'm saying, I'm going round, as I always do here, I'm going round the fire endlessly, but there is method in my madness. You could be caught up in any form of addictive behaviour and some of the sins are considered more blessed than others, the more blessed of the errors. But they are still sins and they're still having a terrible effect on you spiritually and maybe physically and psychologically and socially as well insofar as the spiritual doesn't go into all those areas anyway. You shall put nothing before, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no strange gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol of stone or metal or wood and bow down to it. Nor shall you make of yourself an idol of white powder or naked people or money or power or prestige or 5,000 euro suits and cars that cost off the register. Neither shall you make gods of these things, nor shall you make a god of approval. Look how hard I work and I hardly see my family. Nor shall you make a god of other men's approval of you or women's approval of you. You shall not set up for yourself any idol constructed of any substance, physical, spiritual, psychological, whatever. You shall put nothing before the Lord your God. You shall repent. You will do well to repent for the kingdom of heaven draweth near. He is here. He is already among us. And so is his opposite number, hard at work. Now the gospel today is calling for more than sackcloth and ashes, which we see in Nineveh. In the Old Testament, the gospel is calling for metanoia, for the complete conversion of the being. You need to be converted to Christ in your marrow, in your blood, in your bones, in your liver, in your kidneys, in your gut. I'll stop. I know you're beginning to feel queasy listening to this. But you take the point. Anything superficial won't do. This is not a change of mind. It's a complete change of heart and a change of lifestyle. Now, there are people there on YouTube doing TED Talks calling to radical changes of lifestyle to different diets, different work practices, different socialising practices, and all the rest of it. I'm calling you in the name of Christ and his church here today to abandon your sin and turn to the Lord your God. 
He will gather you in his arms. He's calling to you. You have a vocation to live forever with him. Now, I've been reading lately a little of uh, the 18th century French mystic de Caussade. I'm sorry, I know I'm a pretentious creature. I, I love dropping names like this and saying, you know, I'm dabbling in a little French mysticism at the moment. But there we are. De Caussade. Abandonment to the divine will, to divine providence. And he makes the point, now Newman makes the point as well. It's, it's a point that you'll find made in most of the classic works of mysticism, of mystical love. That the surest way to heaven, the surest way to sanctity, and sanctity, holiness, it, it is nothing more than to stand in the will of God as you stand under your shower. You immerse yourself in the will of God. You are holy when you are living according to his will in the circumstances of your everyday life. Now we have exactly the same thing coming from uh, such a great modern saint as Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of Opus Dei, and the other saints they talk about it, and Newman talked about it, Philip Neri talked about it, one of Newman's great inspirations. They all talked about it, in the duties of the everyday. You know, the treasure was in an ordinary field of really very little attractiveness or no account. The treasure is in the dirt on the road where there's muck, there's brass, as the saying has it. The treasure is in the details of ordinary life. And you're listening to me now and your heart is sinking. You're thinking, oh, you know, oh, crikey, I fail in so many different respects in, in terms of that momentary, that immediate challenge with the kingdom drawing near, with Christ already present among us. In the details of my life now, I'm failing in so many different ways. Look, let me tell you, you're being addressed by a failure. I've been failing at it longer than you. I bet I can fail better than you. I'm great at failing. Ordinary life is no small matter. It's like family life is not for the faint-hearted. Chesterton made that comment when he gave out about people travelling, spending a fortune just for adventure. You could think of any number of reasons for travelling, but looking for adventure was just absolute failure of imagination. You want adventure, it's waiting right at your doorstep. Jump the hedge and trample your neighbour's roses. Take on one of your family members in a discussion about religion or something. You'll have all the adventure you ever wanted. You're lucky to get out alive. It's in the everyday. That's where it is. And now, his point was, he's not advocating a sort of quietism. He's not saying, oh, we can do nothing. God must do everything. No, not at all. It's an act of immersion in the will. And the kingdom, by the way, the kingdom of God is not a static concept. The basileia in Greek is not a static concept. That's the kingdom and that's it, like a block of stone. The basileia implies the active rule of God and one's active acceptance, reception of the king's writ, of God's rule. So it's a crucible into which you throw yourself, but you also are active in it. You make the decision to throw yourself in and you immerse yourself in it actively. And God may lead you in a different way and that's fine. God may not will that the everyday circumstances now will always be the circumstances in which you serve him. He may ask for something else. That is of no account to you at this present point. Now you are where he wants you. If he wants you somewhere else, he'll tell you. And you will come to know. 
There will be a strong attraction. It may be simply a temptation or it may be the real thing. It'll take a bit of time, a bit of discussion with your director if you have one, a bit of discussion maybe with a friend, which can be not just as good, but good, still good, with a friend who's on the same path. And gradually you discern the will of God in your life. It takes a bit of time. But right now, at this moment, there is no point in wishing you were in another moment somewhere else. That's not where you are. Where you are now, you can serve him. Where you are now, you must serve him. Sanctity for you now is to do his will here, now, where you are. That's it. That's everything. It's as easy as that, and it's as hard as that. And de Cossade makes the point that people would be surprised at how easy this can be. Because remember that while the old Adam may be still there, there is also a completely new man or woman. You have the grace of baptism and the power of baptism and the power of God's vocation. God's vocation is not simply one word said once and for all, like written in stone. God's word is a living word. The word of God is alive and active. It cuts more finely than any double-edged sword. And it goes down into the crevices of your soul soaks through the cracks of your very being. Repent. Turn around. What you're being called to do, it is as simple and as hard as that, and only grace can help you to do it. You're being called to do a handbrake turn. The change may be dramatic. You may have to make a very substantial change. You're being called to make a handbrake turn in your life. I saw a handbrake turn once, only once. 30 years ago, I was working in a school in Dublin. We had to call the guards because a few toughs were hanging around at the back of the school. So the squad car comes tearing in because they'd been looking for the same crowd for a while. They were annoying people all over the area. The squad car comes tearing in and one of the teachers shouted to them just as they approached that the buckos had already left the property and had gone in that direction. And I remember seeing the Garda who was driving it, who was clearly an expert, superb driver, he turned the car on a postage stamp. It was hugely enjoyed by all the students who were watching it. It was like something out of a film. He turned the car like a, on a postage stamp and went tearing off in a shower of chips. That's what you're being asked to do. A handbrake turn and go tearing off towards heaven in a shower of chips and dust. Only God can give you the strength, the courage, the grace to do that. Because this isn't simply a change of diet. It isn't simply a lifestyle choice. This is a soul style choice. Is that a word? I don't know. This is a soul style choice. It goes into the core of your being. Change. Let him change you. Actively let him change you. You must play your part in this. You're a creature of free will. We're not Calvinists. You're a creature of free will. We're not predestined in that sense. You must actively let him change you. Let him into your life. You know, I'm not into the charismatics, but they have a point. I can see how it's attractive. And I have seen great good. I've also seen some harm, but great good done through that spirituality. This belief in the grace of God. Now, I know there are dangers there and you have the whole prosperity gospel and all those traps. But this belief in the grace of God that can change the whole person, convert the whole person. And you're being called to establish the kingdom, or rather reveal the kingdom, in the details of your ordinary life.
because your ordinary life, this is the next thing, is not ordinary. All ordinary means is that you've got used to it. And as we know, when you get used to something, it's not that it stops being strange and beautiful. You just stop seeing it. You think you know it. It's like the way people can surprise us, nastily or beautifully. Because we thought we knew them, but they were a mystery all the time. We just knew some things about them. We knew things about them. But we didn't know them. Only God really knows them. You'll surprise yourself. God will surprise you. He makes all things new. You will surprise yourself. And yes, you will change. If you want to change, if you want to live forever, if you want God to come into your life, you will change. And will there be reversions? Will there be falls? There may be. I shouldn't have said at the beginning, there will be. That's not right. There may be such falls. There may be reversion. The dog may return to its own sick. You may chop the odd chicken on the side, on the quiet. Come back. Repent. Keep changing. Keep beginning. And you say back to me, this is an exhausting carry-on. Who can live like this? That's like asking who can live. Because to live is to keep changing, not for the sake of it, but it's to keep getting nearer to what he wants. It's to keep getting nearer to him. We will be with him forever. All that matters is that you're doing his will. And when you do his will, that transforms every single thing you do. It turns the dross, so to speak, of everyday life into pure gold. Pure gold. I'm going to leave it at that, you important creatures, you. I'm just going to leave that with you. The call to repentance, the call to conversion, to stop you in your tracks. It's not a call to gradually mature like fine old cheese or a good wine. It's a call to change utterly, terribly, frighteningly, beautifully, now. And with that change, the kingdom will shine brilliantly through everything you thought was ordinary. In your holy land, in the circumstances of your life, where God is calling you now. I leave you with the words of Francis Thompson, who was a drug addict and a mystic, Victorian, the author of The Hound of Heaven, but it's not a famous poem. It's not The Hound of Heaven. I'm not going to quote from the dog eat tonight. We'll, we'll leave the hound for another night. No, this ties in very much with Jonah. It ties in very much with Mark, where he talks about Christ in London. And he says, Behold Christ walking on the water, not of Genesareth, but Thames. May he walk on the water of your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>